0: Yeah, so, like, I really recommend to everyone making uh, this cedar tea. Alternatively, making the white pine tea. I haven't tried that one yet. Uh, The eastern white pine is a beautiful tree that can be found all around Ontario. Cedar trees, surely. uh, Most people know what those are. Highly recommend a little bit of that. Just a couple tablespoons and four cups of water. Boil it up, make a tea. Uh, it's yeah, good.
1: Not not too much,
0: though. <laughs> not too much. It could be toxic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, uh, but it aids with uh, with your respiratory health, right? So uh, yeah, it's worth 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 looking into. I've been drinking this lately. I'm gonna, yeah, I was looking to that. Yeah, I was feeling this uh, tightness in my chest today, which was very sudden. I didn't feel it yesterday, and I was. You know, I'm like, well, am I just paranoid because coronavirus is out there in the world now? Or is this uh, a real concern? You know, on another day when I didn't know about uh, fucking COVID, would I just say, like, (laughs) you know, maybe I just smoked. This is normal. Yeah, maybe I did. I maybe just smoked a bit too much weed last night or whatever. Like, (laughs) it's hard to say. So these are the kind of questions that we're all confronted with in this time of terror and paranoia. All right.
1: Yeah, I ha- I haven't been feeling chest pains, but um I've definitely I've definitely been paranoid on two separate occasions of potentially having some of the symptoms, but I don't seem to be having them. I don't know. It's it's really hard to say. It's like a it, maybe it's a placebo effect or something like this. Well,
0: that's just it. Right? The paranoia. The paranoia really gets, gets into your head. It, but the thing, <laughs> one of the things that's starting to freak me out is like when I'm going on social media and then I'm seeing person's like posting pictures of themselves or like comments being like shortness of breath high fever like oh shit is this it and like when people publicly oh express this like fear about their illness i'm like oh my god it's yeah. uh it's pretty frightening honestly it does it does freak yeah. you out and these are the highly unprecedented times we've never seen anything like this you know certainly not in our lives it feels like probably one of the greatest like world historical moments that that I've lived through.
1: Yeah, actually same. Yeah. Same. I mean, I've I've never seen such a fast paced, coordinated response on the part of governments all across the world to completely shift the way that human beings are expected to organize and behave and, you know, act and interact with each other. And, uh, and we're seeing all of us Pushed online now (laughs) We're all like We're all the virtual We're all cyber beings We're all fucking
0: posters now (laughs) 24-7 So with that Welcome back to your latest episode of The Poplar Tapes. Uh, My name is uh, Keegan Irish, and I am a semi-failed academic who's trying to break into community organizing. I'm here with my homie.
1: Alex Bose, and I'm uh, hopefully not I failed academic, (laughs) although we'll see if uh, everyone is going to go back to the universities or if uh, society is actually just crumbling and, uh, you know, continues to crumble.
0: You know, they invented the universities, what, in 1200, something like this? (laughs) It had a beginning, it will have an end, so...
1: (laughs) Yeah, and, and, you know, it's, uh, exactly, we've, uh, it's, it's maybe time to actually restructure the models of education and pedagogy anyway, right? I mean, we've been using the same, same power structure for a really long time. Yeah, they're all
0: going online now, so uh, I'm sure that's yeah. really great. <laughs> really great. Facebook is fucking loving it. <laughs> <laughs> Google Classroom yeah. is here to service your every creepy need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: Google Scholar. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
0: Yeah, um, so in all seriousness, today we uh, wanted to talk about the coronavirus, which ultimately like needs no introduction. I'm sure by the time people are listening to this, everyone will have heard of the coronavirus. <laughs> um, you will know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's impossible to avoid. It is a totally uh, global phenomenon. It is wall-to-wall media it's like coverage. the only sh- <laughs> fucking shit. I know, yeah. yeah. It's the only shit that you hear about. Yeah, you're and uh, you're probably also living under these uh, self-isolated conditions, you know, uh, at least here in Ontario where I am. Like, schools have been closed. Restaurants have been closed. State of emergency has been declared. Um, so it's, it's pretty serious. Like I was saying, it's, it's probably the most significant, uh, world historical moment in living memory. I mean, as like, to kind of maybe take a step back from saying that, like as millennials, we have lived through a certain set of world trajectory trajectory of world historical moments, you know, like we kind of came to consciousness with nine 11 9-11 Nine Eleven was the first kind of like major uh, world historical moment. Then we had the Iraq War. You know, we had the 2008 financial crisis. Like, now we have coronavirus. Um, these are the kind of events that have really shaped our political consciousness. And you wonder why we are all increasingly radicalized, you know? You have all of these kind of really extreme events that have sh- shaped our consciousness in such formative ways. Like, you can't sort of half acid or, like, have a lukewarm approach to something like a 9-11 or a coronavirus, you know? It's, like, you really got to go all in. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting place to find ourselves. But all that to say, like, there's so much media coverage of coronavirus right now, and in a way, like, we're kind of just adding to the noise. But um, I think what we wanted to do was something a bit more... Uh, subtle and a bit more intentional, which is that, you know, if you want to hear about the direct effects of coronavirus on like working people and the policy response uh, by governments, for example, there's an excellent Revolutionary Left Radio episode on this, there's an excellent Alberta Advantage podcast uh on this
1: media media indigenous just released an
0: episode too yeah so Check that, that stuff's that stuff's totally out there and so rather than doing that kind of like really fine-grained analysis of the policy i think what we're more interested in today and in our discussion is like well what does this crisis mean for our political imagination what does this mean in relation to the capitalist realism of the neoliberal era because these have been really, really dramatic changes, the likes of which haven't really struck the global economy before. The thing is, like, there's a lot of comparisons to be made to the 2008 financial crisis, but the 2008 financial crisis was a result of like certain banking practices and policies, um, which led up to that crash. And you know, yes, we can be very critical of their uh, the way in which bankers and these various financial institutions treated people, and we can be very critical of the way in which uh, the state responded to that. And I, in fact, I think we should. But what we're looking at with coronavirus is rather this like collision of biological reality with um, political and social structure. And really, it's a crisis that is about the interface between human beings and human society and the biological environmental world. So I think that's what makes it so unique and so interesting. And it also kind of tethers it to the just barefaced reality of the world in a really important way. You know, the 2008 financial crisis was internal to these human social systems, whereas mm-hmm. coronavirus is necessarily about the interface between human social systems and the ecosystems ecosystems that sustain us ultimately, right? So I think that's really unique about this moment. And so that's what we want to... That's the kind of thing that we want to talk about today, right? We want to tie this crisis to um, climate change. We want to tie it to the way in which we in the broad sense of like human beings uh, under the kind of collective subjectivity of capital are interfacing with the natural world, you know? And I think that's really what we want to get at today. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So
1: yeah, we're, we're definitely living in a momentous time, I guess, but also like a very horrifying time. And we have to kind of think through where where these pandemics come from and, you know, how these viruses emerge. And these kinds of questions aren't necessarily the first kinds of questions that are being addressed in a lot of the stuff that is floating around online. Mostly you see information and updates on the amount of cases, uh, the amount of uh, deaths, the amount of cases waiting to be confirmed, a lot of information circulating online about the symptoms of the virus, but also, you know, people's personal experiences of the virus, and then different ways and protocols that the government has been uh, implementing forms of containment and Kind of reactive or responsive measures uh, to contain the virus, but we we also need to think about how those you know those forms of uh, containment aren't necessarily forms of preventing uh, its futurity, right? The futurity of these pandemics, the co- continuity of them, because while there is no clear end in sight to these measures of social confinement or con, uh, containment um, and social distancing rather <laughs> <laughs> since there's no
0: which yeah, can I just, can can I no I just clear, butt in sorry yeah, and say yeah. like social distancing is such a disturbing and Orwellian term, term. <laughs> yeah, <it is>. like <laughs> I, I hate that as like a phrase yeah. but anyway sorry carry on carry on
1: no no no, no totally <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah but there's,
1: yeah, uh, I mean, even though there's no clear end in sight to these, okay, let's let's replace social distancing with like um, social confinement, <laughs> you know, it's like confining so- sociality to specific kinds of spaces. We're confined to the internet, you know, we're confined within our apartment spaces or houses if you own a house or, you know, rooms if you live in a room or whatever, Um, or the outdoors if you're homeless, Um, you know, but uh, there is, yeah, I mean, even though there is no clear end in sight to this, lots of people might be wondering, okay, when, you know, when are things going to come back to normal? You know, when, when can I take back, take back up my everyday life, right? And the thing is, I mean, this could add, if this lasts for months then this is going to you know this is going to deeply impact and shape uh, our futures uh, as uh, as individuals and as communities and as a global community and if we're thinking about the question of what you know what constitutes a normal society in which we live we need to be thinking about how pandemics and viruses like these are not that anomalous. Like on the one hand, yes, it's an anomalous kind of virus because it's, uh, you know, there's no no, uh, known, uh, there's no known vaccine. Uh, It's also, it's not, it's also not the first pandemic, right? We had SARS, we had swine flu, H1N1. um, And these kinds of plagues or pandemics uh, reach deep into the, the past and there's a continuity with them. And there's also, a continuity that they have with the processes of industrialization and industrial capital. These are all going to kind of tie in with what Keegan was opening up with, with regard to the ways in which human societies are kind of interfaced or interacting with ecosystems. So there's a evolutionary biologist that goes by the name of Robert G. Wallace who has been cited a lot recently. He discusses two different ways in which viruses and plagues like this can emerge. So one of them is in a context of industrial mass agriculture. So when we think about how in a factory farm, for example, you have these huge populations of animals in close proximity to each other. and workers, human workers, are interacting with these animals on a regular basis, that creates an interface between the human and the animal in the possibility for any sort of virus that might be uh, gestating to begin to mutate and take on human-specific traits. Because of the density and proximity of these populations of animals, that also creates an environment in which transmission can be accelerated because the viruses can travel from one host to another uh, relatively quickly. And because of that accelerated form of transmission, uh, they can evolve more quickly, gain more resilience, and... um, Become more virulent. Like,
0: exactly, they can become more virulent. So what's the second way in which these can develop? So the first is through this agriculture. What's the second? It's linked to this industrial agriculture, so
1: it's a, but he ties it more specifically to capitalist expansion and uh, forms of extraction. So you can tie those to, you know, like the colonies and forms of industrial or forms of the expansion of industry into places like Africa, for example where the construction of industrial environments uh radically transforms and shifts and manipulates and molds new ecosystems and while it does that um you know either by deforestation or the destruction you know causing devastation in the actual environment itself um it also pushes populations of animals f- deeper into the forest and also pushes people who live off of the land deeper into the forest as well, uh, closer to isolated uh, disease strains. So it creates a greater condition of possibility for a bizarre kind of anomalous disease strain to take root. spill over yeah, and take root in,
0: in human beings. Yeah, so I have a quote here that I pulled from a fascinating interview with Robert Wallace um, where he says this, Planet Earth is largely planet farm at this point in terms of both biomass and land use. Agribusiness is aiming to totally corner the food market. The near entirety of the neoliberal project is organized around supporting efforts by companies based in the more advanced industrialized countries to steal the land and resources of weaker countries. As a result, many of those new pathogens previously held in check by long-evolved forest ecologies are being sprung free and threatening the whole world. It's a great quote. And, and so, I mean, that, that quote
1: actually is perfect because... As these kinds of processes of capital expansion and accumulation in extractive industry are creating those kinds of uh, possibilities in those kinds of environments, those like super close proximity environments of uh, non-human animal and human-animal uh, relationships uh, kind of absorbing or subsuming these kind of viral strains into uh, the network, what it's actually doing is like it's like drawing it into like the global body, you know? And like, what is the global body? It is a global order that's built on uh, like systems of exploitation, expropriation,
0: distribution. Right. So maybe, maybe you'd want to say something like this. Um, The global economy at this point in history is incredibly and deeply integrated. Right? Yeah. Like, free trade has been the mantra of, um, society, the global society for, you know, 30 plus years at least. And mm. so there are very complex and intensive networks of connection between all of these different like nodes of human population and resource distribution and so on. And, um, while those networks are global, there isn't a parallel kind of global network which is concerned with human health, with the well-being of laboring people, and so on and so forth. Like The relationship between nationalism and internationalism in the neoliberal order is that it is Extremely easy for capital and for resources to flow over national borders at the same time that it is incredibly Mm -hmm. difficult for human beings to cross those borders. Right. And so, this kind of situation is one in which there is a lot of. Uh, like interconnectivity, there is a lot of travel, there are people going from place to place, but there aren't bodies, regulatory bodies, looking out for what it's like for those people, looking out for the health of the people, the livestock, and the resources that are moving between um, nation to nation. Because those kinds of regulatory bodies are actually confined within the national borders for the most part, and things like the World Health Organization or the Red Cross and so on. Don't have real significant legislative power in the way that organizations like the World Bank and the IMF do, right? And so this is the this is the kind of imbalance of power in the global neoliberal order, where capital has the freedom of movement, and uh, labor does not. But you know, capital, in order to move, nonetheless requires this movement of resources. Nonetheless requires laborers they just have no protection and so it's very easy for these kinds of illnesses to catch on and to move across borders to move around the globe because our resources our 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 human resources are moving around the globe very rapidly so just to kind of circle back around to robert wallace here uh one of the things that he talks about is the conditions that agribusiness sets up, which create uh, the possibility for the multiplication and reproduction of incredibly harmful pathogens, right? So he talks about the global expansion of factory farming and the global expansion of the meat industry, basically, you know? Um, And so he talks about the way that when agriculture replaces the natural ecologies that exist in a particular geographical area, Um, he says you couldn't imagine a better system to breed diseases. So, and why is that the case? Because uh, natural ecosystems that exist are incredibly complex. You know, they are... There are many, many different layers going on. There are a multitude of different species that are interacting in relation to like the organic and inorganic matter around them, right? Like these are incredibly complex systems. Whereas when those systems are just like wiped out through fire and bulldozing and then replaced with this monocultural system, which is designed to produce uh, animals who will be slaughtered and sold Uh, on the market, you know, instead you set up this kind of monoculture. And this monoculture of livestock is especially dangerous because you have bred out of those animals, their natural defenses against uh, pathogens. And as well, you're constantly cycling the population because you're always sending new pigs to go and die in the slaughterhouse, right? So this is excellent breeding conditions for a virus because that virus has to learn to leap from similar animal to similar animal to similar animal, right? It's constantly doing this. And so then it evolves the capability of leaping from one creature to the next and it jumps into human hosts eventually. And so- in the specific case of coronavirus, you know, you hear all this kind of racist chatter, you know, that, uh, oh, it's because Chinese people eat weird food and all this fucking bullshit. And, God, fuck you know, that, even man. even Trump yeah. has said – calls the coronavirus the Chinese virus, you know. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, so it's pretty obvious that the right is trying to, like, really racialize this. But uh, the yeah. reality is way more complex than that, as it usually is. The reality is… Is that where did this virus come from? Like Alex was talking about this earlier, the way that, um, so bush meat and wild meat is something that has become commodified. But in order to bring that commodity to market, hunters are having to go further and further and further into what is left of forests and what is left of uh, habitats of various animals, because the remaining habitat, as we all know, like is being actively destroyed to create this monocultural. Uh, animal agriculture. So the likelihood of someone encountering um, an extreme pathogen which otherwise was caught in the network of an incredibly complex local ecosystem is increasing and increasing and increasing all the time, right? Like it's, it's inevitable that every single one of these deadly viruses is going to hit us if we destroy every existing piece of habitat for wild animals on the planet and, like, hunt them to extinction. You know, the viruses that they held within them, of course, they're going to come into us, you know? Of course, they're going to come into our livestock, who are closely interfaced with that wilderness space, and then, in turn, leap into human beings, right? Like, and this is precisely the way that coronavirus made its way. Like, you know, the kind of, like, patient zero or whatever was in this... um, uh, a fish market, the seafood market in uh, Wuhan, where there were wild animals like sold. But mm-hmm. to say that it started there is to precisely miss this process of the way in which the wild animals were brought to market. Exactly, you know, exactly. And like, yeah. is to yeah, exactly. just ignore this whole structural element of like the destruction of habitat for the sake of animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so, if yeah. we're not, yeah. and sorry, mm-hmm. yeah, just go ahead.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, no, 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 absolutely. It's just like. Uh, you don't want to actually local, locate the the blame or the origin at, uh, in the the wet market, right? You want to locate it at this like weird path pathogenic pathogenic Is that
0: sure yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> pathogenic yeah. <laughs> ecosystem. You know, it's like an ecosystem that's been like manufactured and produced by this contact between like the monoculture, the industrial monoculture. And and uh, these uh, you know quote unquote wild environments right and so uh, as as a breeding ground for these kinds of viruses it becomes its own kind of like Frankensteinian ecosystem yeah but it's about locating locating it in those structural elements exactly as, as you're pointing exactly. out exactly you know?
0: so. yeah and so like all this stuff to say like. We would be remiss not to make the connection between the virulence of coronavirus and the global scope of what we're talking about and uh, climate change and neoliberal economic structures, right? We need to understand what's happening now in that that larger context and say – you know, this is the kind of thing that, like virologists have been warning us about for a long time. This is the kind of thing that climate scientists have been warning us about for a long time. And uh, this is only the first, you know, it's the first one of this scope, but it's almost guaranteed not mm-hmm. to be the last, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So normality here, right? Like what is the norm? what is what are what is the trajectory of the future if we continue on? Uh, by returning to the previous structures that uh, preceded this outbreak, mm-hmm. which were you know all of those circuits, those global circuits of uh, the flow of capital, the flow of commodities, also human travel, you know on uh, airplane travel. With With all of those structures, if those remain, then uh, it, and it's not only just that, right it's also these uh, these uh, huge, agricultural farming industries yeah agricultural industries you know so it's a, it's a com- combination of the two because on the one hand you have the the viruses kind of emerging out of those environments that are being created but then you also have those uh, viruses and their capabilities of traveling across the world because of those global distribution networks which are basically global distribution transmission yeah. networks. <laughs> yeah, you know they, they re they're yeah they become that anyway.
0: Robert Wallace wrote that capital is spearheading land grabs into the last primary forests and smallholder held farms worldwide. These investments drive the deforestation and development, leading to disease emergence. The functional diversity and complexity these huge tracts of land represent are being streamlined in such a way that previously boxed in pathogens are spilling over onto local livestock and human communities. What he's doing here, is kind of placing the blame squarely in the camp of capital and this desire to uh, continue to um, you know ravage the earth in pursuit of profits, right? Like agribusiness is yeah. so focused on profits that it is willing to select, uh, create the conditions that will select for a virus that could kill millions or billion a billion people. You know, this is treated as sort of like a worthy risk in terms of their investment strategies. This is really at the core of what's going on today is our food production systems, right? And I think that is what is being missed in the kind of mainstream like media narrative that we're we see day to day that is about like you said like containment that's about death toll that's about different like political policy responses that's about um all this sort of stuff right what's being missed there is this deep root of the problem you know like where did this come from like why is this happening in the first place and Making that connection to our food production system and the values that are embedded and represented by our food production system, which as um, Robert Wallace points out, dominates the landscape of the earth, you know, it's like – it's worth drawing that out. It's worth pulling on that thread and saying – this happened for a very specific set of reasons, or rather, this happened as a result of the specific set of conditions which were produced mm-hmm. in order to generate profit, you know? And that is what yeah. is sort of unconscionable. Like, that is the problem that we need to be seriously addressing. And so, when Alex brought up this question of normality, you know? So, I just want to circle back around to that. People, I think a lot of people have this experience, you know, where you're locked away in your apartment. Maybe you can't work. Maybe you're struggling with X, Y, and Z problem. Like, hey, how am I going to pay my rent if I can't get paid? Uh, I'm on EI, maybe like that's only half of my income, blah, blah, blah. Um, When you're kind of in that sort of condition, you're saying to yourself, I just want things to go back to normal. You know, I want to return to the normality that I had prior to this experience but what i think this experience is doing for us is calling into question that normality that led up to this point right yeah exactly
1: yeah and this begs the question what you know what is the future <laughs>
0: yeah
1: if uh, if we just continue to let our mass industrial agriculture complex continue to ravage the Earth and to increase the risk of an even deadlier virus to evolve and mutate and cause another outbreak across the world. And if we don't make any changes to the global networks of distribution, then we're, you know, we're in some seriously, seriously deep shit. <laughs> While, you know, in the midst of all of this, you know, we're asking what kinds of factors led up to this, but also how is this all going to affect me and impact me and my family? What's, what is there that is going to be left if it, the virus uh, subsides or a vaccine is created? You know, what, what is the life that we're going to be going back to? Well, the one that Has been created up to this point, in terms in terms of um, economics, Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of uh, the neoliberal regime and uh, the capitalist system itself, uh, has been one of you know austerity measures. It's varied. It's varied from province to province in Canada, right? I mean, Doug Ford has done some. Horrific shit to Ontario compared to other provinces. Uh, Like uh, all of those teachers, letting all those teachers go. And uh, um, like, I guess he's kind of privatized some of the education over there too. Yeah. So there's been a strong push to privatization of education for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, I guess the point of me bringing this up though is that we were seeing sense of society and community that has been, I guess, in many ways, like crumbling, you know, being destroyed by neoliberal uh, ideals and policies. And, and, you know, if things continue business as usual within, you know, three months and everything's gone, what is going to happen to the people who were unable to pay their fucking rents. You know, what, what happens to all the people that are thrown out onto the street, you know, uh, once evictions are ceased to be suspended, what is this fucking world right now? sorry. I'm like, I'm not, I'm kind of, the more I reflect on it, the more I'm kind of getting freaked out about how uncertain the future is. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And even, even the present, right? Like, um, in the line of work I'm in right now, like we're working with a lot of like street-involved folks, like people who um, don't have homes, you know, to that they can return to that they can self-isolate in. And so, what what are the provisions for for these folks? You know, like how are they going to keep themselves safe safe from the virus? And um, what kind of solutions are forthcoming? And well, it's not obvious. And there have been certain funding allocations, but like, you know, how's that going to play out? These are all – these questions are really up in the air right now. And it's like, uh, yeah, the on the Doug Ford point, like more relevant to the coronavirus than the education stuff is his cuts the to health. healthcare. Yeah. And so we're talking about significant cuts to um, nurses, doctors, uh, cuts to the healthcare facilities, all this kind of stuff, right? Like the number of available hospital beds, all of those are, all of those chickens are coming home to roost right now. Like all of those cuts that have been made under the kind of neoliberal policy direction um, mm. are, are, are. are are being shown to be the foolishness that they really are, you know? It's like when we interpret the health of people in terms of its sort of cost and profitability, then you're not going to be ready for these kind of serious outbreaks, you know? And uh, that is very telling and it is very... uh, Revealing of this whole kind of model of building society and this model of organizing economics, which um, sort of privileges business interests and um, is hostile to uh, public good. Cause I do think that we're at that point in our like social lives together where we don't have a good sense of public good, you know? And you ask yourself like, why are people going out and hoarding toilet paper? Why are people going out and hoarding these goods, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they don't feel like the people who are doing that. It might not be a rational response. It might not be like the right thing to do, but I think <sighs> it is revealing psychologically that people Do not feel like there's anyone who's going to be there for them they feel that they have to prepare themselves and are they you know they're the only one i can count on and all this kind of like individualist um kind of framing of the problem you know because there's no precedent in our society of like our just of our social order operating to look after people in these dire circumstances. Like, people feel that that's not there for them. Uh, and I think that's what's really being expressed in these um, hoarding activities and in the desperation that we're seeing.
1: No, I, I absolutely agree with you, actually. Like, I, I think that it is—it isn't really irrational. <laughs> it's not like a rational decision, really. I saw this uh, video going around online of a man who had spent a bunch of time calculating how many sheets of toilet paper were in a package of toilet rolls that you can get at Costco and like how many like how many sheets would correspond to shits and how many shits you'd have to take a day to like you know and like there's absolutely <laughs> just like <laughs> there's just like like he came up with this number like a hundred you'd have to take like 120 shits a day or something like this. Or like 180 shits a day <laughs> with like, using like Ten sheets or something like this
0: per shit to like
1: <laughs> to like uh, to like uh, to use the same amount of toilet paper within the two week span of like the confinement. Yeah. So you know, there's like it's completely. It's not like it's been carefully thought out. People are like, yeah, they're hoarding, and it's like a, it's kind of like an emotional response, I guess. It is. Like, but it's also you know, and it's 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 like a comfort response. I like, think of toilet paper as like this one thing that. Uh, it's like a symbol of I mean like think of the imagery that's on fucking toilet paper uh uh packages like just like fluffy cats and like uh, and, and <laughs> Bears, it's like a symbol of
0: like ho- soft yeah and it's a symbol animals, of cleanliness yeah.
1: right yeah yeah but uh but it's also it's also it, it, but it it is also it's directly yeah related to this like i think sense of having no sense of community, right? Like it is kind of like that neoliberal survival of the fittest out f- uh everyone is out for themselves kind of attitude that's kind of just like break, like that's just kind of surfacing or you know bubbling to the surface in this kind of circumstance, but I I also think that it's motivated by a kind of a, pop, a an apoc- apocalyptic imaginary as well. Like people are like freaked out, you know, they think it's, like, an apocalypse, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they're just, like, hoarding shit, you know, Mm -hmm. because, like, who
0: fucking knows what's about to happen, but, um... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so maybe this brings us to, really, like, our discussion of the political imaginary, which is where we've wanted to get here, um... So I think when this crisis hit, it really dealt a blow to, as we've been saying, this concept of normality, which is tied up with these neoliberal economies and uh, modes of production and modes of trade and relationships to the ecological world right
1: mm-hmm.
0: like yeah. that is the normality that exists in our political imaginary that people want to return to but you know this crisis has really shaken that it's really challenged that system it came out of that system and it, it people are being mm-hmm burned by that you know Uh, and uh, I mean people are dying like it's very serious Mm -hmm. it's very real how do you respond to this crisis like what do you pitch politically to make sense of what's going on and where things are headed in the future and That question of the political imagination of what's possible, of what's going on, um, that's what's really, really contested, I think, right now. We can see that uh, because this is such an unprecedented moment of crisis, that people don't know what's right. You know, they don't know the right thing to do. They don't know how to respond. And they're looking for answers. They're looking for coherent kinds of explanations um, that uh, will be useful to navigate what's going on in the world around them. And that's totally reasonable. And so I think as... People on the political left in the sense that we – in the sense that we oppose capitalism explicitly, it's like we need to be talking about our ideas right now and we need to be pitching possibilities and solutions and we need to be constructing this narrative that I think we've been constructing pretty effectively or at least like we've had some fun doing it today – uh, where we're saying this crisis is a result of capitalism, you know, it is a result of climate change, which is driven by the profit motive. It's driven by this relationship to the natural world, you know. Um, the natural world is dying as a result of the agricultural business, as a result of. Uh, resource extraction you know that's the reality that we're facing and so why is this crisis coming about you know those same forces of capital are causing this crisis it's about making that connection and so I think on the political left we have to make that explicit Because people are looking for answers right now and they are looking for ideas to make sense of what's going on. So let's put our ideas on the table. The right is already doing this. So, you know, what's going on when we close all the borders? You know, why is that happening? And this is something that the political right has been advocating for for ages. You know, they're always advocating for closed borders. They're always trying to racialize things. Uh, you know, this virus is a result of the Chinese. If only the Chinese people didn't come here, we could fucking get rid of them, blah, blah, blah. You know, obviously this is like abhorrently racist and like an utterly like impotent way of dealing with what is a global crisis. This is not about China Really at all at this point, you know, it's about the whole world and it is about the integration of the global economy and um, Mm -hmm. our susceptibility to these viruses, to death, uh, our exposure to um, vulnerability as a result of these global economic systems, which are not well contained, controlled, and so on and so forth, right? Or, sorry, which are not yeah. well-regulated and controlled mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So what kinds of ideas does the left have besides um, closing borders and these reactionary, like, momentary solutions? Well, that's why we're talking about the root causes of the crisis, right? We're saying we need to transform our agricultural systems. We need to transform our food production. And deeper than that, we need to transform our relationship to these ecosystems. You know, it needs Mm -hmm. to be rebuilt significantly. The way in which this monocultural um, livestock cultivation has completely dominated the surface of the globe, like this is a sickness, you know, this is a cancer We cannot have this. And it is happening because of the unrelenting pursuit of profit, you know? The desire to transform the material world into this like ethereal concept called capital, which can then Mm – move around the globe in this detached and abstract way like that is killing us literally like it is sending thousands of people to their graves you know like this is what we're talking about this is these are the connections we need to make so okay all right you guys have this like big narrative to like kind of guilt people about how global economies work that's fine what kinds of policies do you recommend? Well, we can get into that nitty gritty if you want, you know, we can get into it and say like, Hey, you know, uh, let's institute a UBI, let's institute rent freezes, let's uh, freeze evictions, you know, let's nationalize hospitals, uh, like all these kinds of ideas. These are the things that we're seeing literally happen, um, in different places around the world right now. It just happened in Spain. Yeah. It just happened in Spain, the nationalization of the hospitals, like... Mm-hmm. These are things that are extreme measures, and that seemed un—that seemed impossible. Seemed like ki- the kinds of things that could not be done, and yet here they are being carried out explicitly in a, like extremely rapidly. Like it just goes to show how quickly. The state structure can actually capture um, these privatized systems and just put them to work doing something else rather than generating profit. You know, like that can just happen overnight. That's extremely yeah. revealing. I don't think a lot of people knew that could happen. I don't think that was obvious to anyone in advance. And I'll say another thing. I mean, it's it's kind of revolutionary actually yeah. when you think about yeah. it. It's like it's
1: like. These these uh, these changes c- because incremental change in moder like moderation has always been this like f- people have always kind of fallen back on that by saying oh well it's kind of unrealistic to think of like radical change you know like that's never gonna happen you know it's like something that we've never actually been able to experience but we're we've been experiencing that not only seeing uh, things that you were just describing but even the way in which the ecosystem in the environment has been transformed uh like overnight. You know what I mean? Uh, the clear the clear waters in Venice, Italy, and like uh the reduction like mass reduction of pollution, uh the return of I don't know, like animals uh mm-hmm. to environments that they had uh, left for a really long time, right? Like there are these incredibly rapid shifts that we're seeing. And they're they're Transforming the world like immediately and instantaneously. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and it, it, yeah, yeah. Like we could, we need to harness, we, we know that, we know that, uh, we can do this cl- as a global community. Uh, it, community. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, the challenging thing is obviously like creating the collective subject who's able to enact, enact <laughs> these like, changes in a way that isn't like so fragmented and sudden but um Mm. yeah i do think that yeah okay what i wanted to say before was that you know a month ago from when i'm speaking today on what is it march 20th um 2020 you know if i had said what a a month ago that perhaps we should significantly limit the flow of capital around the globe. That would have been like an extreme left, even like communist position. Whereas saying that today is an obvious commonsensical position uh, in order to preserve life. You know, it's like, yeah, we're shutting down global trade in significant ways. Um, in order to preserve our own lives and like it it's a rocky process like it's not as though we're like oh it's it's easy to do it's obviously not and um, there's a great deal of reluctance to uh, even respond to the scope of the problem on the part of states but The fact that they can, that they are capable of doing that is incredibly revealing. And the fact that if I say that now, most people like agree that, oh, in the context of of a pandemic, that's actually necessary. That's a life and death question, you know, that just kind of puts into relief the way in which the way in which the idea of limiting the flow of capital is about life, is about preserving life. You know, as opposed to transmitting and spreading this death around the world. You know. Yeah, and you know this is what Robert Wallace, uh, Robert Wallace is talking about um, when he's saying that capital is kind of leading the charge of destroying the few remaining forests and the few remaining like. Uh, small landowner farms. He's talking about that life and death struggle, you know, and that's what we're facing in the context of climate change. And that's what's become so explicit as a result of, or as a, um yeah, as coronavirus, an as an outcome yeah. of coronavirus, right? Mm-hmm.
1: And I mean, there's no, there's no obvious way to try. There's no correct, maybe answer on the best way to approach the crisis situation, and to say, you know, I, I know exactly how society needs to be organized. But you need, you know, you do need to have these conversations and kind of think it, think about. Okay, what would a restructured food production system look like, right? What would it look like to actually scale down extremely, you know, or like massively on global networks of trade? What kinds of commodities would be taken off the markets? What kind of markets would be destroyed, I guess? Yeah. <laughs> and what new kinds of markets would be, uh, would emerge, um, but like I don't know. I mean, think about think about this question and your own day to day life. You know, like are you willing to give up your avocado toast <laughs> for? <laughs> <laughs> Are you willing to give up your avocado toast or your I don't know your like oranges and bananas? Alex like, and the Australian. You know, are you are you willing to <laughs>
0: you <laughs> 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 But like,
1: you know, are are you willing to kind of reconnect with the land and the food that comes from this land and yeah, kind of reconnect with the communities on this land? You know that. Mm-hmm. Produce the food that comes from this land. Yeah, you know, are you are you willing to reach out to, or or even get to know the people that live in your immediate environments, and who are uh, producing food. Yeah, producing food, but also. Yeah, like, I mean, like, producing food and commodities and this kind of stuff, but also the people right now who are, like, on even on the front lines, you know, doing community coordinated community response to the most vulnerable in the society and who are offering a kind of infrastructure that fills in the gaps that our current government fails to fill in, you know? Like we've seen a rise in online community response mutual aid groups and how there are people who are offering free services for childcare you know who are donating money to people who can't pay rent like there is a community you know for all those people who kind of just ran out and hoarded fucking TP, you know, there are actually communities, and they're there, <laughs> you know, um, and and we we can do it, you know, we can definitely fucking create a better world. Yeah. You know. Totally. You know, we can land safely instead of break a leg and.
0: You know, our pelvis or whatever (laughs) as we fall. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, (laughs) let's imagine that better world. And I think this is one of the things that is so difficult is that the. The totalizing horizon of neoliberalism significantly limits people's imagination and they're very susceptible to these arguments about pragmatism like, oh, let's like rapidly deal with this crisis and then we'll be over it and we'll return to normality. And I think the whole argument we've been making throughout this podcast is that returning to quote-unquote normality, which pertained prior to the outbreak of the coronavirus uh, COVID-19 pandemic, Um, that return is a return to the conditions which produced the pandemic in the first place and will in turn continue to produce more pandemics, right? Like, we need the kinds of ideas and the kinds of transformative mechanisms and policies right now that will change our relationship to the land, that will change our relationship to our food systems and change their uh, whole orientation such that these kinds of crises will not continue to happen, you know, that's the real struggle. I, I just want to touch on an argument about like food production. So um, when the Green Revolution happened in the 1970s, so we're talking about like a form of industrial agriculture which was developed using a series of like chemical inputs in terms of uh, herbicides, pesticides, and fertilizers, which – dramatically increased yields, um, in industrial farming in, uh, mostly in North America, but like later spreading around the globe. So, uh, we're talking about genetically modified crops, all this stuff that, um, uh, you're probably, we're talking about Monsanto. We're talking about Monsanto. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All these fucking guys, all your friends, all your best friends. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but the argument that is often made in defense of these measures is that, well, these measures were necessary in order to feed the dramatically growing human populations. There, are, at that point, are billions of people in this world, and those people need to be fed. So, we need to increase yields by X amount, and so it's necessary to have these kinds of chemical inputs. Well, let's just think about that argument a little bit, and let's say uh, the lie is given to that argument in such an obvious way when you think (laughs) that uh, one of the greatest uh, polluters on Earth at this point is actually food waste. So all of these excess yields, all this fantastic uh, amount of yield which is generated through these mechanisms, like, is just thrown to waste and why well it's because it has already been sold right so this input style agriculture is not about feeding people you know it's about generating profit like the industrial agriculture the agribusiness that we know today is precisely that a business it's about generating profit and that is a curse upon feeding human beings like there are thousands of people who starve to death every single day on this planet like we know yeah. that agribusiness is not invested in feeding those people they could feed them mm-hmm. you know we we do oh, yeah. know that the yields are really like 10 times yeah. over <laughs> but they are not interested in that yeah. right So this defense of like agribusiness style agriculture that it's necessary in order to feed large populations, you know, is totally false. And I think – I just wanted to make that case and make that argument because – we know it'll come up in defense of agribusiness when we start targeting agribusiness and holding them responsible for coronavirus, right? Uh, for the novel yeah. coronavirus that we're seeing.
1: You know, on the one hand, it's it's made for profit. All of this food is produced for the sake of profit and capital accumulation one of the consequences of that kind of accumulation is the production of scarcity, right? And the scarcity that's produced places like it, it creates a kind of power dynamic that enables these industries to dominate over individuals, mm-hmm. right? So poverty and hunger can like actually kind of work in favor in their favor. Yeah. In a way. Absolutely. You know? It's like, if you have privatized, accumulate, like, masses amounts of food, and, you know, it's just, like, accumulated, <laughs> and you're just, like, holding it all for yourself, then, you know, there's a clear power imbalance here. Yeah. You know, there's a monopolization of food distribution and, uh, the, you know, the power of actually yeah. possessing food. And so... Yeah, that creates, that creates a kind of um, a scarcity and uh, power dynamic.
0: Yeah. and so there's a parallel phenomenon going on with healthcare, you know, where it's like uh, these austerity programs under like neoliberal economics um, force all of these nurses and doctors out of work and reduce the number of hospital beds that are available to populations and so on and so forth um and yeah increase the scarcity of healthcare and increase increase its availability to the extremely wealthy you know there's this hoarding that's going on and so i think there's really like a clear extension not b- beyond just an analogy there's a connection there you know where it's like we need health systems which not only include human populations, but also include the ecological environments in which we are housed, in which we are lodged, right? So um, what is the kind of big idea? What is the alternative to neoliberal economics and accumulation and industrial agriculture it has to be this kind of more holistic vision um, which connects our food systems to the ecology on which we all depend for our lives, you know? And I do think that that's actually, like, a really deep point. I think that that touches on something, like, even spiritual about what it is to be a human being in this world, about our place in this incredibly complex and uh, bewildering cosmos. You know, I think we need to hold that gratitude to our mother, the earth, you know, and say, that we have a duty and responsibility to look after our elders in this case. Like we need to look after um, this ecosystem that upholds us and we need to uh, stand and make arguments in its defense uh, because the opposite possibility is like a miserable death in sickness, you know? So like let's – put these 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 things in very stark terms let's make the the case that agribusiness is responsible and that it needs to be stopped dissolved uh repatriated um this kind of stuff right like Let's point fingers and make the rally around that in order to defend the ecology of which we are fundamentally a part, right? Let's build that narrative uh, together off of this blow to the normality to which we are accustomed. Let's say that normality has been revealed as... Um, a very shallow kind of sham, you know.
1: I mean, uh, another great thing about actually kind of like scaling back um, these systems of food production and like maybe even just like scaling back the kinds of networks of exchange and transportation that exist and distribution that exists and reconnecting with the locality of food production is a reimagining and a redefining of not only not only a reimagining and a redefining of kind of your relationship to the land but allowing kind of the land to reveal its own kind of language to you you know like if we try to create a society that is more aware of its environment, that is more aware of the impacts uh, or the the dangers of ravaging an environment, you know, then there's a certain kind of there's a certain kind of consciousness that you're creating, you know about about the, the land and how it can, actually kind of teach you, teach you a language, and teach you something about yourself. And I think that that needs to come into shape how we make decisions as communities, but also politically, you know? The the environment needs to be uh Prime, uh, mayor.
0: (laughs) 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 Yeah. Cool. So, um, I actually think that's a great note to end on if you're... Unless you have a few final (laughs) thoughts to wrap it up. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah. No,
1: I, uh, I guess... I guess what I'll say is um, for a closing statement is keep thinking about these questions. And, you know, if you have more questions that you've been thinking about, please share them with us. And I really hope that you're all taking good care of yourselves uh, in this uh, time of uh, incredible uncertainty and crisis and
0: doubt and... Yeah, that's that's about it, I guess. Yeah, so my closing thoughts would be something like this. Um, This is an extreme time of uncertainty. But as people experience that uncertainty and they are sort of dislodged or cut off from the ideological certainties which sustain them under normal conditions, they're looking for answers, they're looking for ideas and what we want to do here and what I hope we have kind of made some gestures towards is um, formulating a different kind of way of thinking about our social order in relation to ecologies and saying that actually you know this is really really important Um, This is a really important question to keep coming back to and that we can't just go back to the way things were two months ago or whatever, because those were the conditions that actually produced this um, crisis for us, you know? Um, And furthermore, even if we all survive and everything's fine, there's an economic crisis that's about to hit us on the horizon. Like we we mm. do need these new ideas we do need to start picking up um, different kinds of policy options from the left you know and taking them seriously instead of pretending that closing borders is the be-all and end-all so um you know if you're listening and you're already on the political left like. I would really encourage you to talk about your ideas as much as possible right now and to put those out there into the world and to begin to shape a discourse which is going to have to, at a certain point, be coming out of this crisis and be reflecting on what led us to this point. And I I think that's what we've been getting at today. Um, and that's what we're driving at is some of these deeper causes of the crisis and in turn some ideas about how to go forward that will be transformative and will be um, healing. And so that's very abstract, but I just, I, I think that at, at the more personal level, um, there are some kind of, crystallized points that you can take away from there, which will hopefully provide some comfort amidst anxiety and also provide some direction for action. Uh, yeah, with that, we will wrap it up. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming with us on this journey through the madness of coronavirus. Uh, thanks for listening this far into the podcast. Uh, if you like what you heard, you know, feel free to reach out to us online. We are on Twitter at The Tapes. Uh, we also have an email, thepoplitapes at gmail.com. So... Uh, If you have any questions, contentions, uh, if we missed something, if you liked something or you hated something, let us know. That would be really awesome. We'd love to engage in conversation. So, yeah. Love and solidarity.